Welcome to the Soul Mama podcast, where we have deep and honest conversations about healing, awakening, spirituality, and wellness on the sacred journey of conscious motherhood. We ask how we can walk this path in a way that nourishes, elevates, and heals us and our children. We deserve space and time to slow down and tune in to our hearts, to heal ourselves, and to honor our highest callings. It starts with us. I'm Nahanda Truscott-Reed. I'm a mother, holistic wellness coach, writer, and speaker, and I am passionate about all of the ways we can raise our consciousness and come into more alignment and power as women and mothers. So we can heal the past and make more empowered choices for the future. Our stories and voices matter. It is my intention that these conversations inspire, motivate, and move you on your own Soul Mama journey. I'm so honored that you're here. Today, I had the pleasure to speak to Akila Richards. Akila is the founder of Raising Free People Network, which focuses on resolving the ways that unexamined experiences with bias and oppression disrupt families and organizations' capacity to sustain a culture of belonging. She is also a founding board member of the Alliance of Self-Directed Education, formed to normalize and increase access to non-coercive education models for all families. Akila is also the host of the widely celebrated podcast, Fair of the Free Child, which is where I first heard of her and explores the intersections of parenting, personal leadership, and tools for liberation-centered communication and community. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Raising Free People, coming out later this year. The thing I love about Akila is she keeps it all the way real. I felt like every other sentence was a mic drop moment. You cannot listen to this episode without wondering whether you need to snatch your child out of school. We speak about what liberation means, the damage that the model of mainstream education can have on children and families, and real ways that we can begin to free ourselves and our children. I felt like I was listening to this with one fist in the air all the way through. It was a challenge just to contain myself. Akila articulates herself so clearly, and it's such a powerful conversation. I learned so much, and I really hope you do too. Greetings, Akila. Welcome to the Soul Mama podcast. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Ah, I have been aware of your work with Fair of the Free Child for the longest time, and you've always been an inspiration. Just your journey, your work, and your kind of continued passion for the subject of a conscious life has just been a, con- a constant inspiration for me. So thank you. Oh, wonderful. Good to know. Good to know. It's all about building the community that we need, you know, so it's good to know when things connect with other people. For sure. So I was wondering if you could tell people who maybe haven't heard about you and your work, um, just a little bit about the journey. So you've, you've started as an author, you moved into life coaching, you're an entrepreneur, you're a TEDx speaker, and you've become a leading voice in the unschooling, de-schooling movement. So tell us a little bit as to how that journey's come about for you and your family. So it, 
easily I can say that it started with my daughters, both of my daughters, Marley, who's now 15, and Sage, who's now 13, with their resistance to school. Okay. Yeah, by the time, by the time Marley um, spent maybe about two years in elementary school, two and a half years, and Sage spent less than a year, they were both really clear that um, it wasn't for them, that they didn't, they excelled academically as much as one can in those grades. So they labeled them gifted and talented and they sped them along um, through the grades with our consent fully because we thought that was awesome. Mm. Um, You know, the faster you get through academia, the better, like that sort of mindset. But then we realized that emotionally, they were shrinking. So our oldest, Marley, who has a very outgoing personality, always has, she started becoming, you know, like a flower withering. You know, she would be really nervous about asking questions and she would get anxious about saying the wrong thing. And (laughs) she would wave her hands around and say, mommy, I have so many thoughts and I don't have time to think my thoughts. And, you know, she would just be so frustrated. Can you imagine just like having that feeling at seven, eight and feeling like you have people who say that they're advocates for you, but then when you tell them what you need, they're like, okay, they're there, honey. You just got to do better or tough it out or on the weekend, it'll be better. You know, the same thing we tell ourselves now as adults. So um, that started happening a lot with both of our children for different reasons. And so Chris, my partner and I, we just were like, okay, uh, we started paying attention to what they were saying. And we started realizing that we were advocates for the school system and not advocates for Marley and Sage. Mm-hmm. And that if they were saying that they were not okay in that environment, that our job wasn't to try to figure out how to make them okay, but instead to figure out like what the hell that meant and what to do. So we stopped, <laughs> we stopped schooling, uh, in, in about two and a half years. And we said, okay, let's figure it out from there. So that was the genesis really of the, the combination of the work that I'd been doing with women's emotional wellness as a coach and speaker, um, and retreat co-facilitator, you know, just working with women who were saying something is unraveling, um, within me or something doesn't feel authentic about how I'm living. And I want to sort through that, you know, I started to recognize that shit, a similar thing was happening with my daughters and it was specifically because of school. So we stopped. Wow. I feel like so many parents can relate to that sense of, you know, just the conflict that comes up around children, perhaps expressing that you know, they don't want to go into school or that they're not doing so well with the rhythm or the pace or the people Mm -hmm. or the overwhelm. And we are definitely conditioned to be like, you've got to push through, you've got to persevere. And I've been having these very same conversations right now. My daughter has just started in the school system in London and it was always my vision to homeschool. And it just so happens that the space and stage that we find ourselves in as a family, it just didn't feel viable time-wise. And I know financially, there are things that need to be considered. Different people are at different stages. And so I wonder how you manage that transition to, you know, working in the system, having your schools in the system, having your daughters in the school system to this space of 
liberation and freedom and, you know, self-reliance. Um, so I love and really appreciate that you talk about the, the range of spaces from which we come to this, right? Like there are people who, for example, single parents, you know, I talked to a lot of single moms about what that might look like yeah. um, or people in two income households where it's still just because of all of these systemic issues, it's just not enough, um, you know, or wanting to spend more time with your children, but realizing that generating income feels like, you know, it has to be the priority, all these different things or not wanting to spend all your time with your children, which is perfectly valid as well. There is that part. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and all of that is okay. <laughs> all of that is okay. But um, for, for Chris and me, we, we didn't know how it was going to work. We definitely didn't leave with this really detailed plan. It felt more so like we had to break them out of something that was breaking them. Mm. Um, and so we, when we did that, First, let me think. Um, I oh, so I think that this was such a long time ago. I'm trying to remember it correctly. <laughs> I I stopped working outside of the home, right? So I was a certified paralegal, but at the time I was working in commercial real estate. I stopped working, and um, Chris worked in advertising when he was in corporate. And so when I stopped working, we realized that we were saving like maybe $300 a month, not a lot, but we were saving money each month because basically my paycheck was going towards daycare, right? right? When the girls were younger. Yeah. And then the distance to and from our jobs and all of that. And so by the time they were in, I was um, a full-time entrepreneur. Um, and then Chris was working in corporate and then we transitioned into entrepreneurship for both of us. And so the first year that we took the girls out of school, we owned a home, we had two vehicles, just the typical stuff. And we realized that we weren't beholden to their school schedules, like our whole lives, where we lived, everything was because of the school district, right? <laughs> Which seemed totally normal until we weren't, that that was no longer focus. And we were like, well, damn, so we could like, go places like we could go when the flights were cheap as opposed to when everybody was on holiday yeah so let's like do some shit let's like go somewhere so so we went to Jamaica where Chris and I are from and we said we were homeschooling unlike you I never had the vision to homeschool school wasn't great for me so I didn't want to like have to do it again as the teacher um so we reluctant we we enrolled the girls in a virtual academy the georgia virtual academy and we went to jamaica for a short bit and we had the books shipped to jamaica when we went back the second time because we were going to be there for a few months mm -hmm. and um we were staying with family so we weren't spending a lot of money there and food was a lot cheaper there and you know, so we were able to to do it because we didn't have all of the expenses of schlepping the girls to all the different classes, karate and gymnastics and Girl Scouts and all the things and all the driving and all that, you know. So we were like, oh, my God, school was costing us, even though school was technically free. <laughs> we were spending a lot of money that we could now reroute to different types of learning. And so we stayed with family and. Nahanda, we, what we did was the girls were reluctant to bring their textbooks to the beach. And we're like, come on, this is awesome. You know, you get to study science and the sea and the seashells. 
in nature, in real life. And they were like, yeah, uh uh-huh, but without the books. And so after a while, we were like, okay, fine, don't learn anything then. Leave the books where they are, give it a month or so, and then we'll come back to a structure. You know, we'll try to reorganize and figure something out. Um, And we never, ever, ever went back to it because then we started learning how actual learning happens. And um, they learn all the time. So that just feels so scary. Like just hearing, <laughs> like it, it sounds beautiful. Like I'm like, yeah, in theory, of course, that's how humans learn. Like, of course, we don't need textbooks to validate information when we're in the natural world. Of course, we don't need these things. And and yet, I'm like, I feel I feel like without that structure and without that kind of context and without that direct, um, I guess delivery of information like how would we know the things that we know and obviously you know homeschooling unschooling de-schooling it's not new people have been doing it there are adults who have gone completely outside of the system and are intelligent and autonomous and confident individuals so it, it does work and I do know that but just the everyday moment to moment of that like it does take a literal questioning of everything you know to be true, right? Yes. And that's the curriculum. Yeah. The curriculum of unschooling is to question everything, is to question all the things. That's what de-schooling is because, you know, there's, when we think about um, how would we know the things we know, the reality is that not only does Uh, self-directed education or natural learning work, it is the norm. School is relatively new. The structure of it is relatively new. And as long as it's been around, even though it's new, it also hasn't changed very much. So you think about how much humankind and technology has changed, yet how your grandmother learned in a classroom is pretty much the same as you, how you learned in a classroom. The bits of information may be different, but the methodology is very similar. Um, All of it is based on a model. If you look at the history of schooling and why it was created and the purpose of it, it was not (laughs) to um, make sure that everyone learned. And so when you think about, we we have this thing in unschooling that's called school wounds, right? W-O-U-N-D-S. The cost of sitting in the classroom and the cost of someone saying to you, this is how you should learn. This is what you should learn. This is what's important. Those things cost us a lot more than we gain. Because if you think about everything there is to learn, think about yourself as an adult. Would you be able to comfortably say that most of what you learned and what you use in your life to lead yourself and to be a good mother and partner and sister friend are things that you learned in school? No. Right. And for most people, that's what's true. And it isn't that school isn't valuable. We're just saying it doesn't need to be central. People can opt into school. People can learn a variety of ways. We can connect to community. School as it is now separates us from our culture. We laugh at the way that our grandmothers speak with their funny accent because school tells us that to be well socialized is to sound a certain way, right? To dress a certain way, to have your hair look a certain way to perform a certain way, to pretend that you have money and all the patience in the world and no problems and all of these things that are deeply inhumane and and separate us from our real emotions and our capacity to be in community with each other 
these are the things that you question when you decide to learn outside of schooling, whether it be in a, in a building or school at home. Mm, there's so much power in just what you just said, because I think at the core of my being, and I know I, I speak to a lot of women who feel that same yearning. It's like motherhood in and of itself raises the veil on kind of who we are and why we're here and what is this all about? Yes. And for me, you know, my daughter's only four, but that was the moment at which I realized like, hang on a second, the systems that we're living in do not serve us, you know, as women, as people of color, you know, as humans who want to live a connected and purposeful and balanced life, these systems are not set up for our good. Um, and yep. so there was this falling away of like, I, I can't step in this job anymore. I have to step away from that. You know, I needed to find myself and it felt like a, a really deep journey and evolution. And so for that to then be alongside the growing and learning of my child as well, and to take that responsibility on, like for me, that makes so much sense because yes. school is the first time that you become integrated into the systems of white oppression. Exactly. That journey of learning that you're other, um, quote unquote. And so from when I realized like, I've grown and raised and nurtured this beautiful, you know, brown baby girl. And yet I'm handing her over to a system that I know doesn't have her best interests at heart. Like, why am I doing that, right? Exactly. And, and you're doing it because you feel like that's the only way. And this is, this is what's problematic about it for many of us as unschoolers because it, it isn't about school being like the wrong answer for everyone, hands down. I believe that. <laughs> I do. Akila does. But in terms of self-directed education, which is the broader umbrella, and then unschooling is one form of it. Generally, the issue is not with schooling. The issue is that we don't even question it with, with all the problems that we know that it has, with all the ways that it amplifies white supremacy and all these other forms of oppression and suppression even though we know that from firsthand experience, from statistics, from politics, from all the things, we still just go right on in because we feel like we don't have a choice. That's the problem. Because when you, when you question that, you realize, one, I can create something that makes sense for me and mine. I don't have to now just have my child at home. There's so many communities. There are agile learning centers. There are homes schooling, unschooling collectives. There are intentional learning centers. There are library initiatives going about now to make libraries more conducive to like actual children being around each other and not just shushing each other and reading a book. Like there are all these ways that the planet and the people on it are shifting to humanize learning, to not make it so systemic, but to humanize it. So our job is to pay attention to those things, especially as black and brown people, because we know the system wasn't designed for our benefit. So instead of putting all of that energy and effort into trying to make the system uh, humanize us and to fight the school to prison pipeline and to fight the over-sexualization of girls' bodies or the sexualization at all of girls' bodies, instead of hurling our energy and efforts at that, let's look at what it actually means for us to pursue education it doesn't, it's not locked up in those buildings anymore. It's not like that. Mm. 
I thought it would be useful at this stage just to give your definition of de-schooling because I found that so helpful in just understanding the roots of this process. Um, and so you speak about it as shedding the programming and habits that come from other people's agency over your body, your time, your thoughts, and your actions. And I wondered if you had anything to add to that around the whole unschooling, de-schooling direction. What is that for you? Sure. So so I'm glad you asked about definition. So I'll start with the broader one of self-directed education mm-hmm. um, because I mentioned that. And so I'll say SDE or self-directed education. So it's the belief that the act of acquiring knowledge and skills should derive from the self-chosen activities and life experiences of the person. So in other words, learning is not something that someone gives you. It's something that you pursue and it is facilitated by all other life forms, animals, adults, your peers that are your age, nature, all these different ways, but you choose it and all of that is learning. And so self-directed education um, has different subsets. Unschooling is one type. And for us as unschoolers, it just means that we live as though school is an option and not the central thing. We center ourselves and not schooling. So my children are not students and the goal isn't to get them to the best college. It's to have them develop what what I like to call confident autonomy, Mm -hmm. the belief in themselves, the understanding of um, how they want to show up in the world, the ways that they participate in and can fight against oppression and bias, the way that they can be oppressors or oppressed and what to do about that, um, what they love to do and how to commune with other people to you know, bring your brilliance together, these sorts of skills. Um, another type of self-directed education is the Sudbury model. So you'll hear about Sudbury schools or sometimes they're called freedom schools mm-hmm. or democratic schools where there's a voting process and children are equal with adults. And in terms of the, the say of everything from the budget of the school to who gets hired at the school. Um, and then there are a bunch of different things in between that different groups of people create that makes sense for their communities. So um, de-schooling then, the way that de-schooling fits into all of that is very much like the unlearning of the idea that somebody gives you an education mm. or, that, or that the way that you validate yourself and your learning is by somebody grading you using the exact same system as you grade meat, grade A, grade B, like they borrowed the same system. The, to... to disentangle from that and to the same thing that you were talking about Nahanda that so many of us come to in adulthood like who am I how do I want to show up what's not okay this relationship doesn't work this job doesn't work in order in instead of like happening upon that in your 30s or whenever it's to walk that walk on a daily basis to be really deliberate about how you want to show up in the world what you're into how you define yourself what autonomy and consent look like for you, what trust looks like for you, being in relationships with adults as a child where you're not equal, but it is equitable. Mm. Put those things in practice now so that you're not having to sort through that in adulthood. And so that's what, that's what those things mean. They're, they're to give you the practice of confident autonomy while you are growing, you know? 
I'm sitting here and I'm just nodding and like putting my hands up in the air <laughs> because this, I feel like it's so deep because when, when I'm hearing you speak, what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that let's support and encourage children to grow who don't need healing as adults later. Exactly. Let's not fix the same wounds that we're having to unpick and untangle for the rest of our lives once we're in adulthood. Like, I wholeheartedly believe that children come to this plane with a purpose, with their own passions, with their own minds, with their own characters, with their own agendas. And we place all of these things on top of them that distracts them from that. And, you know, the conditioning of society, especially in the West, with all of the distraction and disconnection and consumerism and capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, it's just moving us further and further away from that original source. So when we actually give ourselves the space to kind of come back into that alignment, that to me is what you're providing for the next generation. That's what you're saying. It's like, well, let's just allow that to evolve without all of the stuff that we put in in place of it. So now I'm nodding and having my hands up in the air because, because <laughs> <laughs> yes, everything, everything you just say, yes, that, and it's, it's absolutely an allowance. It's let's allow for this to happen because it isn't something that I provide. It's something that I allow to happen. And the way that I disallow it is by going back to my old habits of controlling, telling my children, you know, what to wear, how their hair should look, what they learn, what thing is important to them. How, how could I not being them, how can I say what is, what is going to be critical for them to learn? I can suppose, you know, I can introduce, I can do what we call an unschooling strewing, S-T-R-E-W-I-N-G, where you're just saying, these things feel really important to me, whether it's culturally or socially or whatever. And you can introduce those things to your children for sure. But the difference between that and how many of us were raised is that no one's saying, this is what's important. This is how you should look. This is what what jobs are going to be around when you, you grow up. You know, this is what you should focus on. This is how you should dress. All of those things. When you, when you, decide not to control a young person, whether you're their parent or a family member or a facilitator. If you work in self-directed education, we don't say teachers, we say facilitators. So whether you work in any of those capacities, what happens is when you're around children who are free, it, it also teaches you the language and practice of freedom because we realize how in how many ways we ourselves are oppressed in part because we've internalized our own oppression. Right. Like this shit is, it, I mean, if somebody would have told me, uh, you know, a typical Jamaican mother for the first few years with my kids, including hitting, you know, all of those things I started out at. But after being around my children as free people, like when we freed them from school and got to see how they learned and how they navigated conflict and how they, regulated their bodies and sleep and all that we were like yo we as the adults are the ones who have been deeply indoctrinated down to when we eat down to how much guilt we feel if we take a day off even though we don't work for anybody like 
you get to see freedom in practice because they insist on it. So now when people are around my daughters or a lot of unschoolers, but I speak for my daughters because I have so much experience with them, people, people are like, oh, they're amazing. They're this and that. And I say, you know what? <laughs> and I say it in front of my girls too. It, it's not that they're particularly amazing. I'm not saying they're not wonderful, but what you're seeing is free people. And that shit is like really shiny and amazing to us because we ourselves are not free. But really, that's how most of us would be if somebody wasn't dictating who we are and putting their own baggage on us on a regular basis. All the time. So the, the thing is, is that it sounds too good to be true. Akila, I know that there's a whole challenges <laughs> and real life-ish that has hit the fan. There must be, because that just sounds like you're living bliss every moment of every day. Just, just being free, you know, while everyone else is just, a slave to the system. You're just out here being free. <laughs> <laughs> nope. All it means, all it means is that when you're dealing with the other day-to-day things that still come with being alive, being, you know, black or indigenous or a person of color or being a woman or being a human or being whatever, all of the things that come with that, when you're practicing this type of freedom walk, it means that you have a lot more emotional spiritual, logistical space to deal with that stuff from a proactive space, from a taking care of yourself space, from a centering yourself and love space. That's all it means. Marley and I still argue, Sage and I still argue, Chris and I still argue. That's why we do, Marley and I in particular, we do a lot of workshops together as mother-daughter about and we do keynotes together. We do, you know, we're out in the open. We it's not detailed scripted or anything like that. We do these things. And then I have a whole podcast where I talk about these things because nobody here is giving the, trying to give the impression that it's bliss. What Mm -hmm. it is, is liberation and liberation. The other side of liberation is responsibility. So Mm -hmm. in, in some instances, it would be easier for me to say to my kid, because I said so, shut up, keep it moving. You know, like that would be easier. But because we're doing liberation work, I have to swallow that shit and say, no. If I want to raise a black woman who doesn't internalize her own degradation, then I cannot say that I love her and then equally control her because I'm the person in power. I got to do the harder work and say why I'm upset and have a real conversation and develop a real relationship. That's harder. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, so don't, nobody listening, don't get it twisted. But what you just have so much more mental space, you recognize, um, a lot of different forms of oppression, even with food. Like many of us decide to eat differently because we realize, because we have the space and the time to see how certain foods make our bodies feel drab and how long it takes to process it versus another. You just have that sort of space. Mm. The freedom to actually be a leader of your life and in your life as opposed to a series of reactions and waiting for Friday. It feels so revolutionary just just hearing you speak on this. And I know, you know, there are other families living in this in this way as well. Many others, yes. I think the thing that comes up is how do you protect and prepare your daughters for the real world, quote unquote? Because I am so aware that in my home there are completely different values to what messaging my children will receive once they are interacting in that larger society, you know, with the big S. Yeah. 
So because we are still connected to systems, I, I, I'm not living on an island. I'm not growing all my own food. You know, that to me is like the ideal. Like when you've, when you've got to that level where it's like, I do not need to rely on the system for anything. That's when mm-hmm. you're demonstrating true freedom, I believe. And obviously everything on that path is a journey. But how do Absolutely. you kind of still protect and prepare them for the ways others will receive them? Yeah, I love that question. I love that question so much because when people say, how will you prepare them for the real world? My first response is usually, um, oh, so so is school the real world? The school prepares us for, for the real world? When you left school, and I don't know how much schooling you did, I'm making the assumption that you finished high school. Yes, um, I did, yeah. You know, Okay. Yep. And so did I. And then I went to college. Um, I stopped there. I got a full scholarship offer to continue for a master's degree. And I kindly declined that. And I'm glad I did. Um, But I did do undergrad. And I did not feel at all prepared for the real world. Matter of fact, I had a full on quarter life crisis. I think that was my, my first real bout of depression, you know, depression, not just being sad, not like full out. Did you feel prepared for the real world when you finished school? Do you know what? I feel like the the upbringing that my mum kind of provided for me, she was a single parent, but she was very conscious and culturally aware, being a white woman, but raising a mixed race child. She was very aware. She did a lot of work to make me realize that limitations or kind of you know, things that people said about what I could or could not do was not true. But then I found that the systems still made it harder for the things that I really wanted to do. And so I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's the same kind of journey that an unschooled child would come across of that sense of like, but I thought I could do all of these things. And yet when I come out into the world and I realize that, you know, I'm not, you know, sitting on an inherent, you know, like there's some real, real. So to clarify, were you saying that even though your mother gave you that sense, then then when you went to to try to do that, then the system made that difficult for you yes. or you realized that it wasn't just a matter. Right. So school then school did not prepare you for the real world. Is that true to say? Because if that was yeah. the case, then you would not have been surprised. Right. Yes, that definitely is the case. Okay, so that's the first thing. So the first thing is when people ask that question, the other half of that question is compared to school. And I always say school does not prepare you for the real world. The only place where you're sitting with a bunch of people in your age group with one or two people telling you what to do and deciding whether you go on to the next step is in school. Because everywhere else you're working with people intergenerationally, your Mm. bosses or supervisors or whatever will vary your performance. Like, you know, school is definitely a simulation for the other school, not for anything outside of school. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing, unschoolers live in the real world. So an unschooler isn't, uh, now if you talk about a homeschooler that say is under like a religious uh, family structure and there's just one specific set of things that they're being taught, that's different. And that's not what unschoolers do. Unschoolers engage in the world. So the system doesn't just reside in a classroom. It's a subset. It's a microcosm. So they're dealing with things all the time, everywhere. They walk into a grocery store in one city versus another. They recognize the differences there. If you travel to other countries, 
you're dealing with different currencies, you're dealing with different cultures, you're dealing with different foods. You go to the park or the library, you're dealing with people with different personalities and you're dealing with their parents and you're dealing with the difference between how the people act when their parents are around and when they're not. Yeah, they're still having to integrate. Not only, not only are you still having to integrate you get to integrate far better than if you were sitting in a classroom doing something that only works in another classroom. Mm-hmm. So they're often better socialized because that, that's the that's the question you're asking. It's yeah. a question of socialization. They're often better socialized because in school, what you're getting is the performance. The person sitting in the classroom is not the same as the person that you see at the park after class. The person in front of their parent is not the same usually when they're not in front of their parent. Whereas in unschooling, you're yourself in all of these different environments because you're, you know, you're not being graded and berated based on how you perform. So talking on performance, I think that is exactly the key because we are taught that to, to succeed and to receive kind of validation or monetary exchange or whatever it is that we need to kind of elevate ourselves and feel successful in the world we are going to have to assimilate a culture and did I just make up that word? Probably. Um, and if you did, it works. Yeah. <laughs> put on this mask of, of performance. Um, and mm-hmm. that's the, you know, that's the mask that Franz Fanon talks about, you know, the, the double mask, yes. of, of the, the double yes. life to lead as a person, not of the, um, white heteronormative, you know, model. And so we are conditioned in that art of performing. And so my fear, I guess, is that if you don't give your children those tools, if you don't teach them how to speak right and dress right and, you know, walk a certain way and carry themselves in a particular way in particular context, like, are they safe? Yeah. And then the question is, are they safe when you don't do that? Because that's exactly the the same thing. You know, we call that respectability politics. Those are the same things that have us believing that in order for us to be viewed as human, that we have to be validated by pervasive whiteness, you know, by the dominant culture. So Mm -hmm. which is akin to saying that if a woman doesn't dress in a way that a man finds um, conservative and safe, then he has a right, you know, then she shouldn't be safe or she isn't safe. Mm performance doesn't make us more safe. It gives us the illusion that we are more safe. But when we look at the reality of what's actually happening, our, our performance doesn't save us the same way our silence doesn't save us. What saves us is people starting to recognize us as human. And that's not something that we can convince someone of by being closer to what they recognize as okay or comfortable. That, that's just not how that works. How do you teach your children or speak to your children around authority and around kind of people who assume positions of authority, even though on a spiritual level, we know that we're all equal, but people will assume that level of authority. So how do you teach them to navigate that? Yeah, we talk about um, everything being, not everything, but a lot of things being a game, you know, where there's a certain uniform that you wear when you play that game. There's certain buttons you press when you play that game. So for example, college, you know, as unschoolers, we do not, it's not automatic. We're not sitting with our fingers crossed and saving all our dollars for our children to go to college. However, we're not opposed to college. 
So we've constantly, we constantly are having conversations about that option because it can be wonderful, especially if you're going as yourself with a knowledge of self, as -hmm. opposed to, you know, trying to figure out yourself through it. Mm -hmm. Um, We talk about what that would mean to say, oh, well then at this stage, then you would need to start um, getting tutors because these are the tests that you take, or you can start taking the test now. Um, Or if you want to, you know, both of our daughters uh, work, you know, they've worked in different capacities as volunteers, um, as mentees, um, as paid employees in different countries. So they also get direct experience. I and Chris, we're not their teachers, we're parents and facilitators. So much of what we do is make sure they're in real world experiences so that when they worked for the bakery, if they got up late one day, then they got paid less because they work less hours. That didn't feel good. So they stopped doing that. Um, you have to wear a hair bonnet because the law says that. So then they wore one. There was not a question. That person is their supervisor. So if the supervisor says come in 20 minutes early and they want to keep the job, then they come in early. If they don't, then they let us know. And we Mm -hmm. say, okay, what's the protocol? You got to give them notice because then the the bread won't get baked. You know, so they just have the same way we learn it (laughs) through like real world experience, through conversation, um, also through observation, they're, they're around in the world. So they see those things, you know, language and writing and observation. Those are human tools. So they don't, they don't need us to give them those, you know what I'm saying? I hear that. Even in the framing of my question is still coming from that space of like, yeah, we're the ones who are responsible for teaching them. And I understand that because I was there. <laughs> I was so there. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you see your, your vision of motherhood now? If you're, if you're saying it's not to control and it's not to teach, mm-hmm. like what is being a good mother to you now? I love that question so much. Um, so I say all the time that motherhood raised me, right? Of course, there's some raising that I do with my daughters, but the umbrella under which I I took all of my work is this this phrase, raising three people. Mm -hmm. And it isn't just from the space of the the mother or the father or the whomever to the child. It's also the other direction. They raise me. And in turn, my own mother, um, you know, who's around us often, she's also being raised by, raised Mm -hmm. up out of a lot of the oppression that she knew. She talks about it all the time. Um, So what I see, I see being a good mother as similar to being a good daughter and also being a good sister friend, it's about partnership. Do my children feel free around me? Um, you know, do my children feel that they can have honest conversation and that they can trust me to listen? Not always to agree, not always to abide, you know, not always to even be nice about it, but can they trust me to listen? And can they trust me as themselves? Like whatever they identify as and you know, from simple things like, you know, Marley identifying as a dancer and Sage identifying as an artist and, uh, you know, both of them, whatever their things are, do they feel safe and comfortable being that around me? Um, That's one barometer that I use. Also, are my children practicing confident autonomy? So do they know when they're being, you know, horrible to somebody else? Can they take that sort of criticism? Do they recognize, um, how to speak up for themselves in a space or when to be quiet and keep that shit in because it isn't safe, but then to deal with what it means to navigate that. 
Mm. You know, do they have tools for that? Not that they get it right all the time, but do they have tools for that? Tools meaning language and practice. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they're if they're getting those things, um, then I feel like I'm being a good mother. If my children are paying attention to their intuition and regulating their bodies and saying, oh, I've been staying up late and I have a headache and I see how those two things are connected. So I'm going to rest. I'm not going to, which they do all the time because they don't have a bedtime. They don't, we don't do any of that. So they regulate those things themselves. So if I'm watching that and, and it's going well, or when it's not going well, I can say, by the way, you've been cranky as hell. You think that's because you didn't sleep yesterday. I mm-hmm. want you to pay attention to that. And they can take that in because they trust me to come at them from a, a non-coercive space. Then I feel like I'm doing well with my mothering. Those are the things I look at. Mm. And so is there a space of which you feel like you're being challenged at the moment that you're still wanting to grow into? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> uh, all of it. All of it. Because um, it's not, let's see, the, Marley and I just finished the first round of um, Raising Free People Workshop. Today's Wednesday. Yesterday we did the first round of it. Um, and we were talking about being ourselves together. And mm. I always talk about how, for me, as you know, a traditional Caribbean parent, you know, seeing myself in that way in some regards, still de-schooling from the idea that my children don't do little things like say good morning or good afternoon when they walk into a room from little things like that, right? Like who does what? Come on. From little things like that to bigger things like if they want to wear shorts that I think are too short or, um, you know, or, or that just whatever, any aspect of their autonomy that I'm still not comfortable with, or I feel like other people might be judging me about, you know, um, that line between, so what's my focus here? Am I focused on, um, how other people are viewing me or am I focused on my relationship with my child? And what does it say to my child? If I make them bend because I can, Mm. because of what someone else is thinking. So that's one angle, right? There's the other, um, cause I I love giving really specific examples. Yeah, please do. Yeah. There's the other one of like, um, culturally there are things that for me as a black woman, I feel like my daughter should know and that they should Mm. find important historically, culturally as a Jamaican, very specific things, but because we're raising free people, I no longer see the value in, even though I want to. So let me reword that. It's not that I don't see the value in. I see the harm. I see the toxicity in saying, look, you're going to learn about these people. You're going to know this history of these things. To do that is the same thing as sitting them in a classroom and saying, the teacher said, or the system said, you need to learn this. So that line between what I find is important versus still practicing confident autonomy and respecting their right to say no, but also regarding my right to say this feels important. Those are sticky points that Marley and Sage and Chris and I talk about publicly all the time. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are tricky bits, you know, where I want to fall back on my bag of, look, I'm your mother and I said so. And if you don't do it, then I'll take away X, Y, Z because I can do that. Yeah. You know, and and then, and then like the other times where there's something that I will need from them or need them to do, or Chris will need them to do, and they don't agree or they don't understand. And we, it's not everything that they're going to understand because they're 15 and 13, mm-hmm. right? But it still doesn't 
mean that we get to be coercive. So walking that line between, I respect that you have these feelings. I can have a level of regard for what you're experiencing. And I can also still hold my ground here and say, I'm sorry that you might be in therapy 10 years from now because of this thing that I did today, but <laughs> this is the best thing that I know how to do. And so it's what I'm going to go with. It's where I am right now. Yeah. That's what we say to them. This is the best thing I know how to do right now. And I don't know if it's the best thing to do, but it feels like the best thing right now. And I trust myself and I'm asking you to trust me. Like we say that over and over. That's powerful because that is what the the mother-child relationship should be about. It should be about growing and developing and maintaining that trust between between two, two people. And I think the thing that maybe we see as as the parents or as the adults in the situation, if you have younger children, is is that we have the privilege of perspective of the years of experience of having lived in a particular place or a particular time and the ability that that foresight gives us to understand like, okay, if I leave you to your own resources, you might, you might go around the long way to come to the same answer, which I could just help you with. Right. So there is that sense of, I guess, wanting to impart knowledge in a way that perhaps speeds them up having to go through all of those, you know, self-directed mistakes. So I would say for me, it, it's not, it, it's not that it wouldn't, it's not about speeding up and it's not about avoiding at all. Because for me, what I, the, the idea of speeding up would be intrusive because it's somebody else's perspective. And what's a mistake for me isn't necessarily a mistake for my daughters because we're two different people. For me, it's more so about the 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 instances of like safety. So for example, if if Marley and Sage are going out for a walk, just the two of them, and Marley wants to wear or Sage wants to wear a tube top and shorts. Yeah. It's their bodies, right? So this isn't about a mistake. It's their bodies and it's their choice. And somebody deciding to do something non-consensual to them based on what, on what they have on is ridiculous, but it's also the reality. So in that instance, I would say, if you're, you cannot wear that. Yes. In this moment, I'm saying that I am taking that control over your body for the reasons of me having that perspective and foresight. Also for the perspective of me being the person that's legally responsible for your personhood until you turn 18. I mean, things like that. But the other things, it's super important for them to make their own mistakes. It's super important for me to say, why would you do it that way? And for them to be able to articulate either why they're doing it that way or to struggle with not being able to articulate it and me being able to support them with that too, mm. because it's their journey and I, I can't speed it up. That's, not, that's mm. not even true. That's just a perception. I guess it's a perception in my mind about evolution and about how, you know, the, each generation has an opportunity to kind of do things better or differently to the generations mm -hmm. that have come before. Otherwise, I guess my sense is that would we just kind of stay in a place of like non forward progress moving? But I, I hear right. in what you're saying is that progress doesn't have to look like how we think it needs to look. It, it often doesn't. <laughs> that whole notion shifts and, and that's what could perhaps truly be allowed and nurtured if we were to not 
keep on controlling it at every stage. That's what I think. And what you were saying was about, you know, other people's judgment of how you're parenting. Mm -hmm. I think that is a major, major factor in the ways that we raise our children. Um, Like I know, for example, my daughter's going through a phase where she loves saying the word penis over and over again. And there's nothing (laughs) wrong with that. But at all, yeah. I'm like, this is triggering to some people in some context. Like you in the house, there's a way that you can be. And then outside of the house, there's another way. And obviously, because she's quite young, sometimes she forgets. And so she will she will test that situation. And then I'm like, the shame. And then that's the thing to question, right? Like, what is the thing that I feel ashamed? We had a similar thing with <laughs> with my daughters, um, and it was vagina, but it was vagina. And and I remember the man and his daughter. His daughter was maybe about four or five, and my daughter, who said it at the time, was also about four or five. And she said something, something, something. My vagina. And the guy just like grabbed his daughter like she had a bomb or something. And I had to lean over to him, and she saw it too, and she was like. <gasps> She looked over at me and I I leaned over to the guy and I tapped him on his shoulder and I said, sir, vagina is not a bad word. She has a vagina. And I just like made it a point because in that moment I was like, wait a minute, I don't want her to have the the shame like that so many, particularly for us as women, have around bodies and body parts. And I just did an episode recently about how sexual abuse you know, and other forms of bodily abuse are tied to the shame that adults have around body parts. And pleasure. Yeah, exactly. And around pleasure. Thank you so much for saying that, right? And connecting those things. So it's like, you're so right. So many of us have come to that same conclusion on our own that so much of our parenting is directly influenced by, not on the side, not a little bit, directly influenced by how other people judge our parenting and how other people view our children, Mm. including our own parents. So like the things our parents would do, we force our children to perform that even if we don't believe in Mm. it. And what, what message does that send? You know, exactly. And, and in just, I guess, having this conversation, I'm realizing how spiritual and liberating this work is because it's not about getting to a destination. It's about the constant awareness and coming back to the questioning. Like, why do we do these things? Where is this coming from? What is the root? What happens if I don't do that? What has been the biggest um, support for you on your journey? You know, when, when you've come to these kind of crossroads or challenges, what, what things have really supported you? Um, so I'm, I'm a writer, right? That's one of the things that I identify as. So for me, writing things out, this is how I ended up in this, in the position that I'm in, you know, in the work of self-directed education and de-schooling and decolonization. I write, you know, I write to make sense of things. I write to share. I write to try to find other people who are thinking about the same maddening things that I, you know, obsess around. Um, so writing has been a major part of it. Also making sure that I'm only talking about what I'm living. You know, I, I feel like as an entrepreneur, as someone who identifies sometimes as a coach or a trainer, people try to put you in this guru box and like, you know, like everything should be perfect and you should only talk about it when you figured it out. No, I do the opposite. I only talk about the things that I'm, I'm still working through. 
And so that's really helpful for me because then I tend to attract people who are also just real with it, really authentic and beautifully troubled about it. And so I've developed a sense of community over something that used to feel really isolating and lonely and scary for me and for my family. Um, so those tools are helpful. My partner, Chris, and my husband, he's, you know, really, really a good friend in addition to being my partner. So, you know, we have really candid conversations and, um, the podcast has really generated a lot of community for me because again, it's just a bunch of us who are like, I don't know. I don't know either. What do you think? What has worked here? Okay, let's try this. Oh, great. This works now. You know, like just a lot of that. <laughs> you have done that. Literally the conversations that I have had around homeschooling, I know that there are more um, families of color, you know, stepping into this space in, in London and in the UK that I'm aware of. And your podcast comes up, you know, uh, as, as a point of reference, as a point of support and resources and tools. Um, and so the work that you're doing is, is definitely, you know, crossing, crossing over and um, influencing and supporting people through that journey. And it's one that I still hold a vision to because I'm trying to work it out in a way that can suit the greatest good for my family and also for yeah. myself husband and my son at the same time so it's definitely a journey and it's been wonderful hearing how yours has been going and continues to go and I just wondered for people who are hearing this for the first time and thinking hmm like where would I begin like what's the first thing that I need to do like what what would be your advice your words of encouragement for somebody new to this journey so the first thing I would do is celebrate with them a little bit you know and congratulate them on thinking outside of the, you know, the kind of tracks that we're forced down or the ones that we go down if we're not really mindful and not trying to define our liberation for ourselves. So I would say celebrate the recognition that you get to explore other options, right? So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. um, also, now that you have options, don't be afraid to explore any of them. So if homeschooling feels like the good place to start, and you get all your textbooks and all of that. Okay, start there. And the next thing to do is to really start paying attention to your children, not who you think they could be, not who you think they should be, but who they actually are. So mm -hmm. just start paying attention to them. If you journal, journal. If you just want to use the voice memo app on your phone late at night and talk about kind of what you observe with them differently now they're now that they're at home, do that. Um, of course, I'm going to recommend my website because I made it specifically for those of us in the exploration mode, raisingfreepeople.com. And the podcast is called Fair of the Free Child. You can find it on raisingfreepeople.com or anywhere where you can download podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, all of that, where you'll hear a bunch of other families and facilitators who are exploring what it means to be in partnership with you know with people intergenerationally what it means to connect social justice and liberation work to your parenting um we talk about all of those things there's also the alliance for self-directed education um of which i'm a member and and really value my relationships there i'm on the board i'm in, on the committees you know those are my peoples and that website is self-directed.org 
lots of resources there for people who need all the statistics and the science around it. Mm-hmm. So the other people like me who just want to hear the personal narratives and people's deep stories about change, all of that um, is available on the website. So um, that's what I think would be a good starting point, paying attention to your children, um, recording what you're observing instead of you know trying to pay more attention to what to do for them, pay more attention to what they're doing, period. <laughs> and start listening to Fear of the Free Child so you can hear how other people do that. Um, and go over to self-directed.org so you can see where are there other people in your city who are doing that? What are some good books to read about it? Um, you know, get, get yourself immersed in the space so that you can do your own research and feel it out for yourself and observe your child in, in the process. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure hearing you speak through and kind of just share the wisdom of the journey so far. Um, And I'll definitely be staying in touch as I step closer and closer to that space. Please do. And thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited and, and very just enlightened with the whole space of, of liberation and what that looks like for us you know, as women of color and what that looks like for our children. So thank you for adding your perspective on that. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. And I loved the questions that you asked. You know, I, that's what I love about podcasts because each conversation is going to bring up different things. And I love the questions you asked because every single one of those questions, I had them, I had them for years. I couldn't move past certain things. What about math? What do you mean? No bedtime. That's foolishness. I don't, you know, like I, (laughs) I was there. (laughs) What if, I mean, if we don't tell them what to eat there, what are they going to eat? They're going to watch foolishness all day and be on YouTube and be stupid. Like I was there. So I love that you asked those questions because that authenticity, that vulnerability is exactly what's going to allow us to, to move past what we think we know over to what we can really discover. So I loved the questions that you asked and I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for it. Oh, thank you. Next week, I'll be speaking to Caroline Shola Arawa, also known as the Energy Doctor, about the chakra system and how pregnancy, birth and motherhood affects our energy and our life and what we can do about it. Until then, stay blessed. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to soulmamajourney.com for more resources and ways I can support you on your own conscious motherhood journey. For more inspiration, you can follow me on Instagram at soulmamacoach. Also get in touch via email through nahanda at soulmamajourney.com. I love to hear from you, what you thought, what you gained. Please take a moment to rate this podcast wherever you've listened to it. And please share with others you know who would benefit from this conversation. I appreciate you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by myself and Chris James. Music by my talented friend, Ayana Witter-Johnson. 